Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So recently, I mentioned a story from our family that, that sums up the season of Advent. Several weeks ago, my daughter Zoe, she's nine, she was in full Batgirl costume, and she was pacing in front of our home, ready to go trick-or-treating, but it was nowhere near dark. So I urged her to be patient and to wait. And she replied, all saints isn't about waiting, Advent is. <laughs> you see, we talk about and emphasize Halloween as the eve of all hallows, all saints in our house. Uh, but that's what she said, all saints isn't about waiting, Advent is. And she was right. Uh, Advent is from a Latin word, just meaning to come or, or the arrival. And so during this season, we remember the long wait for the promised Messiah to come. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth. We, we slow down and we use this time to retrace that long wait for the first coming of our Lord Jesus, the promised king. We use that to prepare for Christmas. Yes, but also to highlight the fact that we're still waiting. Actually waiting for Christ to come again. Maybe like the game Hide and Seek. We're waiting for this mysterious day that was unknown during his earthly ministry even to the Lord Jesus. When he would announce with a loud voice and the sound of a trumpet, ready or not, here I come again. When he would return with great glory and great power. Christ has come, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And so this Advent season here at St. Thomas, uh, we will wait with quietness and generosity, with repentance and song, with service and fellowship, while the world around us rushes around and exhaustion and consumption. Friends, I invite you to the observance of a holy a patient Advent season. And we start seemingly at the end with Luke chapter 21. Um, and there's this uh, sentence. I don't know if you guys use the morning prayer or the evening prayer service we have. You can use during the week. But in the evening prayer, the opening sentence changes for Advent. And it changes to this verse that this, the perfect summary of this theme, this idea that Christ will come again. From Mark 13, it says, Therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. So let's look at Luke 21 together. Luke chapter 21. Um, and this, it's actually, it's a huge chapter. A lot happening. It's this teaching from Jesus. Uh, Jesus is predicting terrifying big things throughout this passage uh, he says, for example, the temple will be destroyed. He says the world will be in an uproar. That persecution will come on to God's people. That Jerusalem itself, the holy city, the crown jewel of the world for them, will be decimated and destroyed. Verse 20, this is right before our passage. Jesus tells uh, those gathered, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. 
It will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then comes our passage. It's, it's cosmic and mysterious and pretty scary. Jesus says there will be signs and sun and moon and stars on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. It says people will be fainting with fear and with foreboding for what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It says now when you see these things beginning to take place, straighten up. And raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He goes on to give this lesson about the fig tree. We're supposed to learn a lesson from the flowering fig tree. And it says, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place, nor will his words. Um, so before we go much further, I want to talk about what kind of teaching this even is from Jesus. It's a very specific, unique uh, kind of teaching. Like sometimes Jesus speaks in parables, Right? Sometimes he has dialogue back and forth. Sometimes he gives ethical teaching. This, he is giving prophetic teaching. Um, what, what's often called in the Bible apocalyptic teaching. Um, apocalyptic teaching. And I just want to talk about that. When I say the word apocalyptic teaching, what comes to mind? I mean, you might see this little weird section of the Christian bookstore focused on the end times. That's what some people think of when they hear the term apocalyptic. Um, or, or you might think of like crazy made-for-TV Christian movies where stuff goes down and it's kind of scary. And it's kind of like, you know, it's like one of these end-of-the-world zombie movies, but like church, church, you know, through the lens of the church. Um, I should just say, when you think about uh, apocalyptic prophetic literature, it's probably more helpful Instead of just thinking it to be all about the end, to think of it as revealing teaching, revealing, uh, reminding God's people what's actually going on in the world, who's in charge, who will ultimately uh, triumph. Um, one pastor says that you can think of this kind of teaching like, like a huge pot of chili cooking on the stove, and you come into the house and you smell it, right? Something's going on. And then eventually someone comes over and you uncover, you reveal the pot and you can get all of what's happening. It's just these hints, uh, these whispers. And when the church is being persecuted or God's people are being persecuted and things are at their worst, we find this, this kind of teaching says, take heart. God is on the throne. The Lord will return, judge the world with righteousness, redeem and renew all things. And since we're in Athens, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put forth an idea. I think you can get behind this. There are sometimes in the Bible, texts like this, and they seem like they're about the, the literal end of the world, right? And there's this fine line because sometimes these texts are about the end of the world and sometimes this is about, as Michael Stipe would sing, the end of the world as we know it. Michael Stipe, R.E.M., we can do that, right? We're in Athens. There's a fine line between the end of the world and things that feel like the end of the world as we know it. But Jesus' encouragement is usually the same. The scriptures tell us how to think about things like this. And rather than, than reading these kind of passages, you know, like, like a, I would say a board game, it should motivate us for godly living. I mean, think about it. 
Many Christian leaders, many pastors, many Christians, sadly, I would say, approach sections of the Bible like this with a, a self-assured over-speculation. They know what's going to happen. They know what's behind everything. They've connected the dots. Um, it's like some little games that, that our kids play. Anyone play the game Guess Who recently? You've got this mystery figure. You're like, do they have brown hair? Do they have blonde hair? Do they have this? Do they have, aha, the Antichrist. <laughs> I knew it. It's like, guess who? Or, or maybe like Clue. You play the game Clue, right? I mean, I grew up, I remember being in church in the 90s, and, and we, were in, uh, the, you know, we were in Iraq at the time, and every speculation, over-speculation about the end of the world sounded like this from Clue. I bet it will happen with Colonel Mustard in a tank in the Middle East. <laughs> and there were books written and books sold. There's a whole cottage industry around this kind of thing. Or maybe, how many of you played the game Battleship recently? Some pastors, God bless them, they're like a three-year-old playing Battleship. And just they have this confidence to go, it's right there. That's when this is happening. That's when that's happening. And they don't know if they've hit water or hit a ship or which direction the ship goes. Because who's going to check them? It's all in the future. It's really easy to make self-assured guesses when you can't actually fact check it, correct? I know we've got some kids here with us for family worship. Um, if your home is like my home, there are Legos and puzzles that fill your house. And sometimes when I read, pastors, good-natured, good-intended pastors will come to these kind of passages, and it's like someone has dumped all the pieces or all the Legos out on the floor or the table, and they, they've lost the instructions. They don't know where the box top is. But they say, we're just going to grab these biblical pieces or these Legos, and we're going to make what we think it's going to be, and then say, this is what it is. That's how they approach these kinds of passages. And again, it's biblical pieces, but we can actually come up with our own sub-biblical or even non-biblical pictures when we interpret the scriptures this way. Instead, I would advocate that we would have a healthy mix of both faith and humble mystery. Faith and humble mystery when it comes to the second coming of Jesus, who himself said, I don't really know when this is going to happen during his earthly ministry. Now, we would say that we need to have faith that this will occur. And actually, it could occur at any moment and at any time. And so what God's, the scriptures usually say is to stay awake, stay ready. But again, we freely admit we don't know what this will look like. And I would just say in the church, we have a terrible track record discerning the difference between things that seem like the end of the world, like the actual literal end of the world, and things that seem like the end of the world as we know it. Um, American churches, we're especially good at this. <laughs> For the last couple hundred years, we have uh, not hesitated to put dates and times. This is when the end is going to come. And everyone waits. Ooh, that didn't happen. <laughs> okay, let's move the date. We must have gotten that wrong. And they'll, they'll change the date. We, we have whole... Uh, in the 1800s, whole like cults that developed around crazy end time stuff. This is a, an American Christian specialty. And I would just say it's something that, um, it's, I mean, it's fun. It's kind of fun to play like those guessing games. I, I get it. Um, but it, it can cause us to lose our credibility 
um, and actually lose our focus. Um, we, can, we can actually over-focus on things that aren't major themes in the scriptures. Um, and that's not what God wants for his people. That's not how we best apply passages like this. Um, here, Jesus will actually conclude this passage uh, by encouraging his followers not, not to speculate about uh, the winds and whats and hows and whos or prophecy, but he gets in our business to say, no, you need to live godly lives of holiness because this could happen at any time. He says, don't be distracted by the pleasures of this world, the cares of this life, and instead stay awake at all times, praying, being ready to stand uh, before the Son of Man. And so it's natural that many have read this passage, Luke 21, to be about the end times, the second coming of Jesus. Um, I would say, Lee Corso, not so fast, my friends. I actually think there's something else going on here um, that Jesus is specifically referring to. Uh, more of a, it's the end of the world as they knew it. There's something coming to God's people, especially Israel in the first century, that they could not imagine that would be disastrous. And it would seem um, like either the end of the world or at least a preview of what it would be like when God sums up all things in his son Jesus. Uh, Luke, this gospel writer, of course, believes that Jesus is going to come again. He, he wrote the sequel, Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to the Father. The angel comes to the disciples and says, hey, you're going to see him come in the same way that you saw him go. Luke very firmly believes in the future coming of the Lord Jesus, but this I think it's actually something specific. I think Jesus is warning them about something that would happen in A.D. 70. Now, you may remember that the Jewish leaders and most of the people at the time, they're, they're looking for a specific kind of Messiah. You probably heard about this in sermons, right? They're waiting for someone to come and lead. They're, they're waiting for someone to follow uh, the way of the sword rather than the way of peace. And part of their rejection of Jesus was that he wasn't picking up the sword. Um, even, uh, you remember right before Jesus, after his trial, when Pilate says, I'm going to release a prisoner to you, and you can have either Jesus or Barabbas. I, I always thought that was the weirdest thing as a kid. Like, why in the world would they ask for Jesus over Barabbas? He's a criminal. Well, as I got older, I figured out Barabbas, he had been arrested as a freedom fighter, he killed a Roman. He was following the way of the sword, what they wanted. And so they're not saying we want a criminal over Jesus. They're saying we want the fighter over this one who won't fight. We want the way of the sword over the way of peace. And even after Jesus is rejected, even after his death and resurrection, even after the church is born and begins to spread, they cling to the ways of this world and the way of the sword. And eventually, they take up arms against Rome. And by the way, if you're Israel and you decide that you want to fight Rome, that makes about as much sense as those poor offensive linemen from Charleston Southern trying to block Jordan Davis. It's going to be just that effective and it's going to be just that ugly. During a tumultuous time of persecution, massive political unrest, the Jewish people miscalculated. The time was finally ripe to rebel. They'd finally go with the way of the sword 
and Rome crushes them. Like, like crushes them. Like end of the world as they know it, destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem, put the whole city to the sword. And I think actually that's part of what Jesus is getting at here in Luke 21. It's really, it's not, it's not a huge mystery. He said, hey, 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 when you're in Jerusalem, my followers, and you see the city surrounded by armies, and only Rome had enough really armies to surround cities like Jerusalem. Hey, hey when you see that man, get out of town. Like flee to the hills. Don't, don't stay in the city and don't go down with the ship because something is coming on Jerusalem that you don't want to be part of. And so I'm letting you know ahead of time. It's a very clear, concrete warning. And, and I know that actually feels a little far and distant. It's, it's not as fun. We like the Bible to be about us, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, having a passage directed to Israel in the first century, that's not as fun. Not maybe as interesting, but there's a lot we can learn even from this. Bishop N.T. Wright, he, he sums up this passage. It says, Jesus is telling them that a time of great crisis is coming in which the failure of Israel in general, and Jerusalem in particular, to repent and follow the kingdom way advocated by Jesus would have disastrous results. The Romans would come, they would lay siege to the city, the results would not be in doubt. The best way of understanding this passage in Luke is then to see it as a promise that when Jerusalem, the city that had opposed the message of Jesus, is finally overthrown, it will vindicate him and his people. The sign that he has indeed been enthroned at the Father's side in heaven. Again, Luke, of course, believes in the future second coming of Jesus. But this passage is not primarily about that. It's about his vindication and rescuing his people from the system um, that has oppressed them and ruled over them. And I was trying to kind of just get a mental picture of what this would be like. And you probably know this fall, we, we celebrate or we mark 9-11, right? This, this horrific event that occurred in our country where these two towers are decimated. Um, and we feel that viscerally. Um, there's an emblematic aspect to those twin towers. We see it as an attack on our country, right? We, we mark it. We mourn the loss of life. I would say whatever your perception of 9-11 is, multiply it by thousands and thousands to understand what happened in A.D. 70. Because as significant as we think like buildings like the Twin Towers were, this is the temple they're talking about. Like, like the place of their absolute national and religious pride where, where they thought God's glory dwelt it marked them as God's people. It was the center of their religious and social and national life. And Jesus says, it's coming down. The whole city is coming down. Um, I, I talked about Legos earlier, right? How many of you have Legos in your house? Who here has broken Legos? Oh, not as many. Okay, y'all are good. Um, we occasionally will push a Lego project off of thing or we'll step on one. You know, it kind of breaks, but you can put it back together. I mean, you just go back to like, you know, instruction 23 and you just start going through the Lego process again. And Jesus says, this is going to be broken, but it won't be like that. In fact, this would be like 
every stone will be unturned. Like if you somehow, something hit a Lego finished product and now every piece is back in its own bag, separate and decimated. That's the kind of thing that's coming for Jerusalem. And so you can see how there's this real connection between things that would be the real end of the world and the end of the world as we know it. That, that was the end of their world as they knew it, what was going to happen. So again, I, I'm not sure that this passage is about the second coming of Jesus. We could debate it. It's up for debate. Um, and it may be that the destruction of Jerusalem and these prophecies, they're almost like a movie trailer. Like, hey, let me give you a preview, because when the real end comes, it's going to be kind of like this. Or it could be flipped around, where it's just kind of a foreshadowing. Whatever that relationship is, um, I think we can embrace humble mystery. and Say, Jesus is going to come again. We don't know how or when. We can engage in fun debates. I get it. This stuff's fun to speculate or over-speculate. But here, there's some clear things, even in this mysterious passage. First, Jesus gives instructions that are applicable whether we think this is about Jerusalem or the ultimate end of the world. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 34. It's right after our passage. He says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength. And again, then Jesus says, hey, this is going to happen before this generation goes away. And again, that could be really specific to those people gathered, or generation can kind of stretch. Um, could be a little more latitude with that. Um, secondly, we do know from the whole of Scripture, Jesus will come again. Um, and it's a little bit interesting that we talk about this during the Advent season. I mean, everyone's getting ready for like baby Jesus, and we're getting ready for baby Jesus too. We say, hey, let's use this time in the church to remind ourselves that there is something real and future and coming. That at some point, the Lord Jesus will come again. And he calls us to live lives that would not be panicked if that was occurring but we'll be excited to greet our king. This is our, uh, in the Anglican Church of North America, we have a, a document called the Catechism. It's a teaching document. It's kind of, I mean, it looks pretty nice, right? Anyone else have this? Oh, yeah, we got one or two. Good. Um, if you can actually download um, a PDF copy of this, but it, it just gives really simple question and answer about basic theological concepts and some verses to look up. Um, and so it has stuff about, because we say in the creed that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And it says, hey, can we know when Jesus will return? No. It says, no, we cannot know when Jesus will return. Jesus patiently waits for many to repent and trust in him for new life, then he will return unexpectedly, which could be at any moment. And then they help pastors. Question here, how should we live in anticipation of Jesus' return? It's pretty good. So I should anticipate with joy the return of Jesus, my Savior, and be ready to stand before him. His promise to return encourages me to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a holy life, and to share the hope of new life in Christ with others. All these things we know for sure about the future coming of our Lord. And so during the Advent season, um, usually about one out of every three years, our readings really focus on this. 
of thinking about the fact and our great hope that Christ will come again. In the same way they waited so long for the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus, to be born, will we still wait in a similar way? Not knowing when this will happen, staying awake, and being ready. Now, there's a little cliche that floats around self-help circles and the world of sports. Sometimes you can get some good little one-liners from self-help in the world of sports. You might have heard it. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. You heard this? I could just, I could just see Kirby Smart delivering this. You know, is your team ready for Alabama? If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Um, and I get the sentiment of it. Uh, but I would say in the church, we have a more realistic view of our devotion and how inconstant we can actually be. A realistic view of our abilities. And, and we know that we struggle to stay ready and to stay alert and to stay attentive. And so we have the Advent season comes to us really as a gift. It's the opportunity. It says, hey, we, we know we don't always stay ready, so let's take this opportunity to get ready again so that we can stay ready again for Christ himself to come again. And so rather than when we think about the coming of Jesus again to have just you know, endless over-speculation or this person is that or that event is that, instead, we would actually go, hey, how are we living? Are we living lives of holiness? Where we rejoice for the Lord to come in this moment, giving what we're doing and how we're living. Will we rejoice to stand before him? Because we know this will happen in God's good timing. That we're to have an appropriate awe and reverence, even, yeah, biblical fear. As we contemplate the gravity and glory of these events. And part of that kind of awe and reverence is that whenever we talk about Jesus coming again, it's combined with the day of the Lord and judgment. It's a little bit of a harsh message, right? It's not a great happy holidays, Merry Christmas. The Lord is coming to judge the living and the dead. But it's true. And so we announce it. We live in light of it. Uh, we're motivated to pursue holiness, to ask the Holy Spirit to continue his transforming work in each of our lives, to to empower us and show us the work he has given us to do. Um, but there's also an, a clear element of gospel of good news. Even as we think about scary, big ideas like this, um, first I would say that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and he came full of grace and truth, right? And there, there is something of kind of a, I don't know, popular interpretation that Jesus has undergone some kind of just psychiatric 180. But I would say when Jesus comes again, he's going to be Jesus, <laughs> full of grace and full of truth. Now, he might lean on truth a little more, but it's going to be the Lord that we can trust, the Lord Jesus, full of grace and truth. Perhaps these, I want to close with this. This is from uh, author and pastor Frederick Beekner. That acknowledges the reality of coming judgment mixed with the grace-filled love of Jesus. Here's what he writes. It says, The New Testament, the, the teaching of the Scriptures, proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history. 
And there will come a day on which all our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other will themselves be judged. The judge will be Christ. In other words, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. The one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. Indeed, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Come, Lord Jesus, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.